This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Kermit Roosevelt III about his new book, The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. Your book, Kim, couldn't be more timely. We find ourselves at the moment in a perfect storm of a national identity crisis. Voices at all points of the political compass asking who and what is American? Who are we as a people and a nation? And where is the true American story? Maybe you could begin by telling us why the standard story is a false story about where our values come from. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. And I'm glad that you think the book is timely, uh, because I do too. I think that we're in the middle of a really important national conversation about who we are and where our values come from. And as to your question, there are a bunch of different things to say about different stories. And historical truth is not the only thing that we think about. And, you know, I tend not to believe in historical truth as an absolute. I think people have perspectives and there are stories that are useful and there are stories that are less useful. But in terms of historical accuracy, I think our standard story and sort of the defining feature of our standard story, as I understand it, is this idea that our modern American values of universal liberty and human equality are there in the Declaration of Independence, fought for in the revolution, written into the Constitution, and then progressively realized over time. That story, I think, really does not stand up well to historical analysis, starting with the very first point, which is about the Declaration of Independence. So if we ask what the Declaration of Independence meant in 1776, to Thomas Jefferson writing it, to the Continental Congress reviewing and editing it, and to the people who read it at the time, I think it's pretty clear that the Declaration, and in particular this phrase, all men are created equal, which is what we really focus on now, didn't have the modern values that we associate with it. And there are a couple of sort of relatively easy ways to see that. I think one is that if you take the modern reading of all men are created equal, which means something like the government should treat all people equally, or at least treat them with equal concern and respect, take their interests into account equally, then obviously it's inconsistent with slavery. And since the declaration is setting out conditions under which people who are treated poorly have a right to rebel, it seems to tell you that rebellions by enslaved people are justified. But obviously, that's not what Jefferson is trying to establish. And we know that in part because the Declaration is about the rights of the colonists, and it's trying to establish that the colonists are right in rebelling against King George, not that the colonists are oppressors, which is what follows immediately from the modern understanding of all men are created equal. And we also know that the colonists felt very strongly that slave rebellions were unjustified because the last, the most serious charge that the Declaration levies against King George is he is inciting domestic insurrections. He is encouraging enslaved people to rebel. 
And then another sort of even more direct data point. In Jefferson's first draft of the Declaration, he has a passage that criticizes not domestic slavery in America, but the international slave trade and tries to blame King George for introducing slavery to America. And that passage didn't make it past the Continental Congress. So even though it's not about slavery in America, even though it's blaming King George and not saying that the colonists are in the wrong, the Continental Congress takes it out. So it just doesn't make any sense to suppose that the first self-evident truth of the Declaration is a principle that condemns slavery, that shows the colonists are wrong, that shows that enslaved people have a right to rebel. There's just no way they would have written that. You, you make a point somewhere in your book about the three flaws in the, in the, in the Declaration and the, and the Constitution. Well, so I'm not, I'm not sure what three flaws I would identify, but the thing about the Declaration of Independence that I think we tend not to understand now when we, when we look at it is that it, it really was written in a particular historical context for a particular purpose. And what it's about is relationships within a political community. So it gives us a theory of where legitimate political authority comes from, and then it gives us a theory of when legitimate political authority can be rejected. And all of that is about the relationship between the people who have formed a political community. So it actually doesn't have any implications for outsiders like enslaved people, people who are not part of a political community. Is that what you mean? What do you mean by the inclusive declaration? Right. So when I say the exclusive declaration, I'm talking about that and and Jefferson's political philosophy, which really is drawn from Locke. The political philosophy of the declaration is about people coming together to form a government by consent and they consent to its authority. And then the government has duties to those people. But it's all about relationships within the political community. So that political philosophy doesn't tell you that the government has any duties to outsiders. And enslaved people are outsiders. And this kind of exclusivity, right, we're a community and insiders have rights, but outsiders don't. This kind of exclusivity carries forward into the Constitution that's written in 1787, at least if you believe seven justices of the Supreme Court, because seven justices of the Supreme Court are going to say in the Dred Scott decision that blacks can never become U.S. citizens, that there's an exclusivity principle based on race in the Constitution. Now, a lot of people will say, of course, but Dred Scott was wrong, right? Dred Scott was a terrible decision. And Dred Scott is a terrible decision in terms of the principle that it announces, but it may be an accurate reading of a terrible document. It may be an accurate reading of the 1787 Constitution, which contains principles we would now consider terrible. Obviously, the 1787 Constitution contains the Fugitive Slave Clause. It contains the Three-Fifths Compromise. It shouldn't surprise us that there could be accurate judicial decisions that announce terrible principles, because we know there are some pro-slavery principles in that Constitution. We also know that the founders are insiders who form government to secure their own rights, not the rights of outsiders. And in that understanding, the phrase, we the people, means the insiders. 
Yes, I think it's it's absolutely clear that we the people in the Constitution means insiders. It's talking about basically the citizens of the states. It's talking about the American people who are members of these state political communities. They're people, they're men of property. Yes, and, and then it goes on. The Constitution, the preamble, actually goes on to sort of reiterate that because who is the Constitution being established for? Who is supposed to benefit from it? Well, it's supposed to secure the blessings of liberty and so on to ourselves, we the people, and our posterity. So again, it's a limited political community that is supposed to benefit from this. And what changes that, and this is sort of the the pivot moment of American history, what changes us from an exclusive community to an inclusive one is birthright citizenship, which is part of the 14th Amendment. So then after that, the idea is if you're born here, you're one of us and the states can no longer exclude you and the federal government cannot exclude you. Right. You become one of the American people just by virtue of being born here. Our, our political community is open and people can enter into it. Whereas before the Civil War and Reconstruction, it really was closed. Right. I mean, by we the people, they meant what Madison described as those of us with the wisdom to perceive and the virtue to pursue the common good. In other words, they're going to give it to themselves. Yes. So in pre-Civil War America, you definitely have this idea that government exists for the benefit of a limited group of people and outsiders are dangerous and outsiders are threatening either, you know, just to kill us, which is what the outsiders mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, the Hessian mercenaries, the enslaved people who were rebelling, the Native Americans, they're presented as threats to the lives of the colonists. So either outsiders are going to kill us and they're dangerous in that way, or maybe outsiders will take what rightfully belongs to the insiders. And this is a sort of neo-Confederate strand of political rhetoric that you do see in early America, but you see maybe even more strongly now. That's the way in which this exclusive ideology survives. The idea is there are people who aren't real Americans somehow, maybe technically they're American citizens because of birthright citizenship, but they're not the real insiders. They're not the people that the government should be looking after. And these undeserving others are taking what rightfully belongs to the real Americans. What about women? Do women qualify as insiders or outsiders? Well, so women are a very interesting and sort of difficult category as far as the theory of the Declaration of Independence goes, because they are insiders. They're members of the political community. They're sort of presumed to have consented to the government. They're subject to its authority. It has a duty to protect their natural rights. But historically, it does a terrible job of that. Right. Historically, the rights of women are neglected and violated. And so if you're looking for people who have valid complaints, according to the theory of the Declaration of Independence, as it's understood in 1776, enslaved people really don't. I was saying the declaration is not about their situation because they are outsiders. Women actually do. You say somewhere that liberty and equality were not the main concerns in the founding era. What were the main concerns? The main concern at the critical points in American history, 
I think if you go back through American history and you try to tell a story about people coming together, seeking to promote a particular value, it's basically unity. So if you look at the Declaration of Independence, it's about separation. They're separating from Great Britain, but it's also about unity because the colonies have to come together to fight, to be able to win the war against the British. Join or die, Benjamin Franklin says, if we don't hang together, we will hang separately. Unity is the most important thing. And then you get a similar situation with the drafting and ratification of the Constitution, because again, it's sort of a crisis moment. Will the American nation survive? We need to come together in order to eliminate the prospect of internal conflict between the states. We need a stronger federal government and a stronger union. And in order to protect ourselves from European powers, we need to be able to speak as one and fight as one if necessary. And so again, unity is really what's being pursued. And then the more interesting and sort of more troubling point is, okay, unity is being pursued, you know, not equality and not liberty. What's being sacrificed? And the answer there turns out to be equality most of the time or racial justice. Because if you look at who's being brought together at these crucial moments, in 1776, there are supporters and opponents of slavery. And they have to all get together to fight the British. They have to find an ideology that everyone can agree to. And then with the Constitution, it's free and slave states, because now there are some free states, states that have abolished slavery. And again, you get compromises. You have to get a system that everyone can live with so that they can join together. And the result of that is we compromise. We do things like the three-fifths compromise. We make accommodations with slavery. And you see this again, I think maybe really strikingly, with the Compromise of 1877. So the abandonment of Reconstruction, when white America basically gives up on the attempt at reforming the former Confederate states and making a multiracial democracy. Once again, people come together, basically white Americans come together, and the cost, the thing that's being sacrificed, is racial justice, because we give up on Reconstruction and we allow white supremacy to restore itself in the South. And then what about the Second World War and the Cold War? Well, so the Second World War and the Cold War are very interesting because they provide a set of circumstances under which racial progress actually does happen. So there's a very interesting book called The Unsteady March, which looks at sort of progress on racial equality through American history and says basically it only happens when three things come together. One, there's a war that requires mobilization of African-Americans. Two, this war is being fought in the name of values of democracy and equality that are inconsistent with racial discrimination and racial stratification at home. And then three, there's a domestic political movement that's willing to say, look, if we're fighting for these abroad or if we're fighting for these in this war, we should honor them domestically. And you sort of have that in the revolution. You definitely have it in the Civil War. You have it in World War II. And you have it also, to some extent, in the Cold War. And in all of these historical moments, we do get some progress on racial justice and racial equality. But the interesting point that this book makes is that when you don't have those factors coinciding, we don't have the sort of steady, inevitable progress 
that we like to think that the standard story sort of tells us, you know, American history moves towards justice. Actually, you know, we have no progress or we have backsliding. Right. And that's your point about relying on the the self-evident truths in the Declaration and the Constitution are looking backwards. What you mean by continuity? They are connecting us to the past, not moving forward into the future. Right. I think the, the story that we tell ourselves, which is that our fundamental values of liberty and equality are there at the very beginning, and then they're sort of gradually realized over time. One of the things that that story does is it gives us a sense of inevitable progress. And I think that allows even people who are in favor of racial equality, it allows them to sort of sit back and say, you know, don't upset the apple cart. Don't make everything about race. Let's just be civil and patient and progress will happen inevitably. One of the important lessons of American history is that's not the way things work. Tell us why we tell the standard story and then tell us why we shouldn't tell the standard story and why we should tell ourselves what you call a better story. Well, I think we tell the standard story because it's reassuring and because it gives us a story that can promote unity of a sort. I think it's a story that makes it easy for white people to come together behind this idea of fundamental American goodness and inevitable progress. And that's a reassuring story. The reason that we shouldn't tell it, I think, is one, it does sort of leave people out because it asks us to suppose that Thomas Jefferson stated our deepest ideals when Thomas Jefferson enslaved his own children. So if you're asking people to look up to and admire and sort of see themselves in the creation of America, and you're telling them that's Thomas Jefferson writing the Declaration in 1776, some people will find that alienating, right? And it's the people who really believe in equality, I think. It's the people who are really opposed to slavery. It's maybe particularly black Americans, but not only black Americans. It's, you know, anyone who doesn't want to compromise with slavery. The standard story brings people together in a sort of reassuring way if they're willing to accept this idea that our fundamental ideals can coexist with slavery. And who it leaves out, who it marginalizes is part of the reason I think the standard story is bad and we shouldn't tell it. The other main reason is it has this sort of narcotizing effect, I was saying. It suggests to us that all we need to do is wait and be civil and be patient, and America will sort of work itself pure without us having to do anything. And that's a recipe for stagnation and actually regress, I say. So we need a new story, a better story. We need a story that tells us that actually justice requires action, and maybe justice requires sacrifice, and we should be willing to make sacrifices for other people. We should be willing to make sacrifices to make the nation better and more fair. And not just because we think our own rights are being violated, but because we care about principles of justice for everyone. That's not the revolution. That's not the Declaration of Independence. 
That's not the 1787 Constitution. The time in American history when those when people subscribed to those values and died for them, right, and died for the rights of others, not their own rights. The time in American history when that happens is the Civil War. And the documents that express that are the Gettysburg Address and the Emancipation Proclamation and the Constitution that we get with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Reconstruction Constitution. And we should work toward that so that, I think you say somewhere, even the 1619 Project, the story told by Hannah Jones, is, is, uh, relies too much on the past. Yeah, so I think the 1619 Project is great. And I think that the response to it teaches us a lot because the 1619 Project really is telling us a version of the standard story. It's saying we have these ideals in 1776. We don't live up to them. And the standard story admits that too. But people fight for them over time. And through American history, we do sort of progressively more fully realize them. And, you know, really the way in which the 1619 Project differs from other versions of the standard story is that a lot more of the heroes are black. And it's very disheartening, I think, that some people look at that and they're like, that's not a story of America, right? This is a story told by people who hate America. Because really the only difference is there are a lot more black heroes. And if that's a deal breaker for people, it says something bad about them. So on the one hand, I'm saying that I don't think the 1619 Project is as radical as its critics suggest. I don't think it's anti-American. It's this familiar story of fundamental, noble American values there at the founding and realized over time. I think, you know, in some ways, I'm actually more radical than 1619 because that's the story that I'm trying to dislodge, not just revise. I'm trying to say our fundamental values aren't there in 1776. They get read into the Declaration of Independence. And basically, they get read into the Declaration of Independence by abolitionists. So our fundamental values come sort of not from the colonists' struggle against Great Britain, but from the abolitionists' struggle against slavery. And I think this is a much better, more inspiring story, because you don't have to say the person who articulated our deepest values actually enslaved his own children which you do have to say about Thomas Jefferson. You can say, you know, the people who articulated our deepest values were reacting against an oppression and injustice that they saw. They were concerned about the rights of other people, not just their own rights. And they were trying to make America a more just society. So you think that the battle hymn of the Republic would make a better national anthem than the Star Spangled Banner? I do think that. And, you know, I've said that before, and I received some pushback about the religiosity of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which I guess I have to concede. Um, so maybe it's not a great idea for us to have a national anthem that explicitly talks about God. I would say we've got one of those now, right? If you go through the Star Spangled Banner and look at the later verses that people aren't as familiar with, one thing you will see is it explicitly mentions God too. So a lot of the older songs do that. The other thing that you find if you go through the Star Spangled Banner is a reference to victory over the hireling and slave because it's about, as most people know, the War of 1812. And in that war, as with the Revolutionary War, 
a lot of American enslaved people joined the British forces to obtain their freedom. And they fled from their American enslavers, and often they fought against their American enslavers. And that's just not a very inspiring war to be writing a song about. If you want to have a song that's about a war against slavery, a war for liberty, obviously that war is the Civil War. And that, of course, is what the Battle Hymn of the Republic is about. And in its sort of most religious passage, which I guess is a downside, it also has this idea of sacrificing for other people, which is, I think, the fundamental Civil War Reconstruction idea as compared to the Revolutionary War fighting for my own rights idea. Because the Battle Hymn of the Republic, it does say, you know, in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea. Unfortunately, it's mentioning Christ. But then it goes on and it says, as he died to make men holy, let us die to make them free, which is the value that I think we want to have central in America, uh, which is that we will make sacrifices to help other people, to protect their rights, to stand up for these principles of justice. Do you see at this moment, do you see any evidence of that? Do you, do, you, do you see that idea gaining traction? I don't know if I would say I see it gaining traction. I, I see it out there as a site of struggle, certainly, and I think you can see this in a lot of ways, but um, maybe one of the clearest is people's reaction to masks. So when people were asked to wear masks to protect others from COVID, because it turns out that masks are better at protecting other people than protecting the people who wear them. You had two different reactions, which I think sort of typify founding America, the revolution fighting for my own rights versus civil war reconstruction America fighting for the rights of others. Because some people said this is an outrageous infringement on my liberty, right? And you're trying to make me a slave and the government is violating my rights. And that's founding America. You know, that's the sort of revolutionary war rhetoric. And then other people said, you know, you're asking me to inconvenience myself or bear a burden to protect other people, to protect the vulnerable. And that's something that I'm willing to do. And I think we'd be so much better off if we could see that as American virtue rather than submission to tyranny. Do you see any evidence of that being expressed in, in, in let's say, the, the riots of the summer of 2020 and the riot at the January 6th at the Capitol? Well, so the Black Lives Matter protests, I think, are very clearly, you know, what I would call sort of reconstruction style protests, because they're saying there is injustice, right? There is abuse. There are people who are being treated unfairly, not necessarily me, right? Not necessarily the people who are marching. Um, it's not just black targets of police violence who are marching. It's a big movement. And then January 6th, I think, is very much founding style, revolutionary style rhetoric, because there the idea is the government is violating my rights. And it's sort of hysterically overstated. And there's sort of conspiracy theories in there. And honestly, if you look at the revolutionary war era, some of the colonists' rhetoric is similarly kind of overheated. You know, by the standards of the time, the colonists weren't being treated that badly. But in the Declaration of Independence, they basically say King George is trying to make us slaves and also murder us all. And our rights are being violated, and we will decide when the infringement is sufficiently important to justify rebellion. And we think it is. And we're going to take this into our own hands. 
and it's you know violent rebellion against the national government, which is sort of what January 6th is, except I should also say January 6th is not an attempt to separate from the national government. It's an attempt to take it over, to take control of the government. So it sort of looks like the Revolutionary War and, and independence, but it looks even more like the end of Reconstruction, the destruction of Reconstruction, what people call the period of redemption in the South, when the white supremacists took back power because they rejected the results of elections, you know, and, and they said, we're going to put our people in power. Why at the moment is this discussion so critical? I mean, how do you find us at a moment where the finding of a true American story is important? Well, I think we're at a moment now where the standard story isn't working for us anymore. And I think in, in part, it's not working for us because it actually teaches us bad lessons. So, you know, it teaches us that violent revolution against the national government, treason against the national government is American patriotism, which I think is a bad lesson. But it's also inaccurate in a lot of ways. And it requires us to identify with people like Thomas Jefferson, which, you know, frankly, I find pretty difficult. And I think a lot of people find difficult. So I think that the, the standard story that we have now isn't working for a number of reasons. And there's a struggle about how to deal with that because people want a story that's accurate, that's honest, that doesn't downplay bad things that have been done in the past, which our standard story does a lot. But they also want a story that allows us to see an America that we believe in, that we can love, that we can feel patriotic attachment to. And that's what I'm trying to offer. So a lot of the defenders of the standard story will say to things like the 1619 Project, you know, you're going to destroy people's faith in America. You're teaching children to hate America. You're teaching that America is irredeemable and bad and built on racism. And I'm trying to go, you know, 180 degrees away from that, right? I'm saying America is much better than you think. America is not founded in a slaveholder's rebellion. America is founded in a war against slavery. You know, the Civil War really does end slavery. The revolution actually protects it. I'm saying we have a much better story. You know, we have an inspirational set of founders. We have a great document that states our principles. It's the Gettysburg Address rather than the Declaration of Independence. We have a war that's fought for those principles. We have a constitution that makes them law. We have all the things you want in the standard story, right? And it's accurate and it's more inspiring. And you can say America is a great country built on liberty, you know, where people died to protect the rights of others. You just have to understand it's not the 1776 America. It's more the 1863 America. Do you think there's enough life force in the spirit of democracy and sacrifice in our present circumstance? Is, is that there? Well, I think it is, you know, because I think that the people who are defending the standard story and the people who are trying to ban critical race theory, whatever they think that is, in public schools, some of them, I think, maybe have bad motives. You know, some of them maybe are drawn to 1776 because it's a time of white supremacy. But I believe that some of them are patriots who just want to 
preserve some kind of unity, not necessarily at the expense of racial justice, but they want to preserve the idea of America as a nation that you can be proud of and America as a nation that you can believe in. And I think that I have a lot to say to those people because I'm giving them a better America, a better story, a story that's more accurate and more true and more inspiring. And we can come together and say, this is a nation that we're proud of and this is a nation that we believe in. And the stumbling block is not that my story requires you to identify with Thomas Jefferson. The stumbling block is my story requires you to identify with Abraham Lincoln's side in the Civil War, really, which for a long time, many Americans have had difficulty doing. But I would say that's a lesser problem because if you find it hard to see Reconstruction as the birth of our America, it's because you kind of identify with the Confederates. And people who identify with the Confederacy rather than the United States, I think it's okay to marginalize those people and to say, you know, we're forging a unity and it's a real unity that is open to everyone, which the unity of the founding era really isn't. This unity is open to everyone who believes in equality. And it might mean that some white people end up on the outside, which is another way in which it's different from the founding era unity or the Dred Scott unity, where the whole point was whites are together and the people on the outside are blacks. But this says, if you believe in equality, right, you're one of us, you're one of the insiders and the people who are marginalized are the people who identify with the Confederacy. But equality in what way? Not in terms of skills or situation in life, but in, in terms of the before the law. Right. So equality is a, a deeply contested concept. And what kind of equality we should be hoping for in society has always been disputed. Our modern reading of all men are created equal, it certainly is not supposed to mean everyone is equal in their attributes, like people are not the same height or the same weight or the same intelligence. People are different. One idea is the government should treat all people equally in the sense that it sort of counts all of their interests equally, which is the principle of sort of equal concern and respect. Another idea is that equality is a permissible goal for government. It is okay for the government to say, we prefer equality to inequality. And generally speaking, that's an idea that we've accepted. So we have a progressive tax system, for instance. We take more from people who make more money, and then we redistribute that in lots of ways. We have programs, probably not as effective or as extensive as they should be, I think, but we have programs that provide support to people who have less. What's really interesting about the revolution and the Declaration of Independence versus, say, the Gettysburg Address and the Civil War is that the Declaration of Independence, historically, if you look at when it pops up in Supreme Court decisions, it's basically always there to fight against redistribution in the name of equality. It's there before the Civil War in the Dred Scott decision itself to say the federal government cannot ban slavery in the territories because that's unfairly taking away from insiders. And it's there after the Civil War when the Supreme Court is striking down progressive wage and hour legislation because there it's saying 
inequality arises naturally and the government can't play favorites. The government can't try to help out the less fortunate. So there too, like the declaration actually doesn't stand for equality. It stands for a sort of hands-off government neutrality where one of the things that the government absolutely is not allowed to do is just to say that it prefers equality to inequality. All right. Well, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I'm optimistic. I mean, I sort of feel like there's no alternative. You know, if, if we're pessimistic now, then what is there to do? I believe we can still make a difference. Kermit, Kim Roosevelt, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, thank you for coming on The World in Time to talk about your new and timely book, The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. Thank you so much for having me. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.